Fundraising everywhere. 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 You need to add me in there. Welcome back to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. Now, over the next few episodes, we're taking a look at some of our favourite legacy fundraising on-demand sessions in celebration of our Legacy Fundraising virtual conference coming up on the 15th of February. If you'd like to join us at the conference, you can use the promo code FEPODCAST to get 50% off your ticket. Yep, just head to our website and pop in FEPODCAST at checkout to get 50% off our Legacy Fundraising virtual conference in February. Enjoy today's session. Fraser and I are going to have a bit of a conversation about um, some questions that we are often asked or often reflect on in our work. Um, but we also want to make sure that you guys feel very empowered to be a part of this panel. Um, the chat box is a place where you can respond, add your thoughts, consider what you want to add. So this is kind of a truly fundraising everywhere panel where everyone is on the panel. Right, Fraser? Absolutely right, Jen. Okay, so let's jump in and we're going to talk about um, language and legacy storytelling. So, Fraser, my first question for you is, how do you, so we're going to just jump right in, how do you talk to supporters about their own death? How does that work for you? Uh, that's a great first question, and I think it's an important one. I'll start by saying I think that legacy fundraising, more than anything else in life or the world that I'm familiar with, experiences a huge generation gap. Um, almost all of the fundraisers I know are either millennials or Gen Xers, some uh, Gen Z or Gen Z now, um, and very not that many left are boomers like me or civics, of course, who are, who are much older now. And if I can just uh, quote a couple of sources, uh, Jane Fonda, one of my favorite philosophers in the world, uh, does a TED talk called Life's Third Act. And to, and to summarize an 11 minute talk into about 30 seconds, there's a school of thought that we live our lives in kind of three periods, uh, like a hockey game. Um, and in, the, in that first act between birth and about age 30, we're learning, we're growing, and we're becoming who we're going to be in our life. So it's that developmental phase when we're growing and learning and becoming. The second act, which most of you are in, or almost all of you are in probably, is between age 30 and 60. And that's the, that's the phase when you're busy, when you're productive, when you might be raising a family, uh, you're accumulating, you're achieving, you just got a lot of stuff going on and you're moving it forward. You're, you're, you're using your third chakra a lot, you know, lots of ambition, lots of drive, whatever. And then about age 60, uh, and I've crossed that bridge not that long ago, around age 60, you start to go, hmm, I don't really think I need to prove myself a whole lot anymore. I don't think I need to build my brand anymore. I don't need more stuff. I don't need more friends, maybe. Um, I need... I'm, I'm pretty content with where I am. And now I want to use whatever's left in my life, hopefully another 30 years, to become the best me I can be and to, and to become the person I really truly want to be. And in that third act, 
you also make peace with the fact that you're going to die. Uh, up until age 60, most people, um, and the pandemic shook, shook this up somewhat, but most people up to age 60, I mean, they know intellectually they're going to die, but they haven't really accepted it deep inside. Whereas according to the Canadian Journal of Palliative Medicine, people really accept their own mortality once they've experienced the deaths of others in their own age group, their own peer group. So once you've been to a memorial service or a funeral for a sibling, for a high school best friend, for an old girlfriend, for someone you worked with who was, you know, you raised your kids at the same time or whatever, and you see them dead, it starts to really uh, sink in that it's going to happen to you too. And in my experience, and it's been almost universal, when you talk to people about their own eventual demise, they're not all uptight about it. You are. So I guess I would just say on the subject of death, get over it. Now, of course, you don't want to say, hi, we're the Arthritis Foundation. When you die, can we have some money? You have to be careful <laughs> and subtle and thoughtful about how you approach it. But I don't think, I have never found talking about death or mortality and the, the, the footprint you want to leave on the world as a donor to be a difficult thing to broach. And I find that people respond to it very well. What do you think, Jen? Well, so to agree, and Jane Fonda, I actually read um, her book, which really is a legacy. Um, it, it's kind of a legacy, unexpected legacy fundraising book. But I think, like you, I'm a proud word nerd and language matters and the way we choose our words matter. So, you know, the late great George Smith used to say that all good fundraising should sound like someone talking. Every time we're having conversations with donors, they're not interviews. They're not, we're putting together an article for the magazine or newsletter. They're an opportunity to share your story. They're an opportunity to talk about your life your values, what matters the most to you. So it's actually not even about death. It's about life. And when you ask questions that invite emotional and sensory language, then you're not talking about your donors or your supporters' death. You're talking about your donors and supporters' lives. And so it's almost like a reframing for me. I agree. And Russell James, who if any of you aren't familiar with Russell James, like Google him and check him out. He's he's really an interesting and smart guy. Uh, he talks about um, the auto autobiographical part of the brain, which is uh, unlike other charitable gifts, which come from the empathy center, the autobiographical center of the brain, which is where leg legacy gifts originate from, is where we've constructed the story of our lives. Yeah. This is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I've given. Um, mm -hmm. And Ultimately, this is how I want to be remembered. And if you think of your of your life as a book, as a biography, the legacy gift is an, auto, uh, an opportunity to write the epilogue to the book. After Fraser was gone, this still happened because of him. So it's an opportunity to add another very positive chapter to your own story. And speaking of stories, um, Jen, I know you and I are kind of story nerds. Uh, tell me mm -hmm. your thoughts about the role of storytelling in, in legacy fundraising. So... Yeah, the, the, the role of storytelling and legacies, to me, it's like a Venn diagram that has almost no overlap. Uh, because the thing about stories is that when you create and develop the right legacy stories, you can not only uh, have the other readers who are looking at your story say, oh, I agree with Fraser, as opposed to 
this organization is telling me how great they are and why it's important and why I should leave a gift in their will, but we can see ourselves in other people's stories. So legacy donor stories do heavy lifting for you that you can't do as effectively without or explaining, you know, the kind of blather that people say. And when you can use legacy stories to confront common barriers to legacy giving. So here in Canada, we've been doing a bunch of work through the Willpower Campaign on acknowledging and confronting barriers to legacy giving. We know that one of them is that people will say, oh, I'm concerned about my kids or my grandkids. If I leave a gift in my will to a charity, how is that going to affect my own family? And when you actually speak to people, as Fraser and I do all the time, and I ask the question every conversation I have, hey, have you talked to your loved ones about your plans for your gift in their will? And almost 99 to 100% of the time they say, oh yeah, I had that conversation and it was hard and it was challenging for me, but I was able to express my wishes, my values, what matters to me, I feel in control and my kids have a better understanding of what matters to me. And the kids will say, I feel so good knowing that everything I've loved about my mom or dad or loved one is going to live on through their generosity. So we can use stories strategically to confront some of the barriers that we know exist. And we can also create more opportunities for people to plug into the organization story without it being what I call org explaining. Um, and then lastly, Fraser, you love your job more as a legacy fundraiser when you spend your time talking Absolutely. to donors instead of talking about legal or financial or codicils and jargon. So what do you want to say? Where, where do you I, think? I just this? think I, I agree with everything you've said. And, and if I spoke very much about this, I'd just be repeating you. The one thing I would add is that I'm an absolute believer that charitable giving of any kind, including legacy giving, happens in two steps. The first step and the critical step is that the heart has to feel the desire to give. Yeah. If that heartfelt desire is not there, the head is not going to do the work of how much am I going to give? Will it be a residual? Will it be a fixed amount? You know, should I go to the lawyer today? Should I go next year? Whatever, whatever. The head won't do that kind of practical work until the heart goes, I need to do this. And the best way I know to trigger the, the, the right emotional response or the emotional response that you're looking for to get that heart impulse is to tell a story. Um, it, it, I tell a lot of stories when I present at conferences and it's a joke in my house. Uh, I'll come home from Toronto or Vancouver or wherever and my, my stepdaughter Beatrice, who's 22, will say, how did it go? I said, oh, it went really well. And she'll say, how many people did you make cry? And I'll say, about half. And she says, oh, so it went well then. Um, you know, like, yeah, make people cry, yeah, make people feel something, make people feel feel the pain or whatever it is. Uh, the heart is way more powerful than the head. I'll just leave it there. Yeah, I hear you on that. So let's continue in this vein, Fraser. What are the legacy stories to look for? What are the kind of, if you're working in your office, doing everything you do, what are the legacy stories that you want to try to zone in on? And if, if my pal Richard Rock, Radcliffe is on this uh, call, I... I I should point out that I'm probably not uh, congruent with him on this one, although I am most of the time. Uh, I, th I agree with Russell James again that the most powerful persuader you can use as a charity is a living bequester, or uh, I don't know what your language is in Britain, but someone who's already made a commitment to a legacy gift and who is willing to share their own testimony as to why the cause matters to them, cancer, uh, animal welfare, 
uh, international development, whatever it might be, um, how they came across the organization, why the mission matters to them, how they started to support the organization, and how ultimately, when they reached the third act, they started thinking about a gift in their will, and ultimately they had that conversation with the family, and now they've made the gift, and now that I've made the gift, this is how I feel. And the idea here is to find a storyteller. Uh, if you were looking for a storyteller, find somebody who looks like me, because I'm in the right cohort. Uh, somebody's going to look at me, and, yeah, you know, I've had a life like that. And if I make references to, you know, uh, Yes and, and Pink Floyd and, uh, and David Bowie and his Diamond Dog days, people will know what I'm talking about. Um, and so... A, legacy, a living legacy dequester is number one. Two, almost as good, I would say, is a surviving loved one of yes. someone who is or already... impact story. That's what I was going to add. Exactly. Because in that case, you cannot yes. just talk about the loved one who yes. matters so much to you, but also that the gift has been transacted. And now you know that that gift is feeding people who, who, are, or who are homeless or keeping dogs alive rather than being euthanized in the hopes that they'll find a forever home or... Research, my business partner, Holly Wagg, uh, lost her wife to leukemia um, five or seven years ago. And as a result of that, left it, left a gift to the hospital where her, her, her wife died for leukemia research. And mm -hmm. that, that money, you know, and, and she made a major gift and then a legacy gift to get it rolling. And, and it was very important to her. Um, and so those two are important. I would also say someone who's a recipient of the program, um, uh, someone, it could be a volunteer. The other story I love, and we never talk about it in, in sessions like these, I always try to tell the founding story. Where did your organization come from? Yes. The, exact, the first time I, I appreciated the importance of this is I was working with the Canadian Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and I was talking to someone, and I, I stumbled upon their founding story, which was two dads in their 30s, I would say, were standing on the front steps of the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, probably having a smoke because this was back in the 70s or whatever. And they happened to start chatting to each other. And one says, well, why are you here? Well, my daughter's upstairs at the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic. And the other guy goes, yeah, mine too. And he, how old's your daughter? 12. How old's your daughter? 11. And they started to chat and they started to talk about how there's no, there's no source of information or support for parents. And so these two guys, I remember one of their last name was Summerhays, decided to call a meeting and they put up posters in the hospital and a bunch of parents showed up. And out of that came a, a really large uh, charity that ultimately it was a Canadian researcher funded by the CF Foundation in 1989 who discovered the gene that causes cystic fibrosis. And kids, if I'd been born with CF, I would have died by the age of five. My daughter, if she'd been born with CF, would have probably lived in, well into her 40s. Uh, and that's happened in one lifetime. So the founding story, I think, is also very important. Yeah, I think you, so my thoughts on this are impact stories that ideally have a loved one, donors who can express their own stories, and then uh, beneficiaries, as you said. So I want to add one more thought. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's political parties, and I used to run one in Canada, um, whether it's political parties, whether it's corporations looking for customers, whether it's charities looking for, for, for supporters and donors, the age of corporate boasting is over. Nobody believes you when you say, we are the best cancer foundation in, in the UK. We are the leading whatever. Don't say it about yourself. Get somebody else to say it about say it for you. Yes. An expert, a supporter, a volunteer. I've been volunteering at this hospital for 30 years because I've seen firsthand all of the work that they do and the lives that they say. When the CEO goes, we're the best hospital in town. Well, of course you're going to say that. I don't believe a word of it. 
And as you get younger and younger and younger in the cohorts, um, you know, from from Cidics to uh, boomers to Gen Xers, we get more and more and more skeptical as we get younger. So just completely step back from the corporate boasting. I wanted to switch topics a little bit, Jen, and ask you, I come across these guys all the time. We're a small charity. We've, we don't have much budget, if any. Uh, I've kind of got this on the corner of my desk, but I've got eight other things I need to be doing. How can I just get a start? How can I move the needle just a bit and create, I call it pushing the school bus. How can we get the wheels starting to roll a little bit and create a little bit of momentum? What would you advise people to So, and this is one of the places where we start these conversations and also when we have a program that we're working on, we have to do it in kind of a reverse engineering way. But the two really important things to ask are, who is the voice and who is the face of your legacy giving program? So the voice or voices would be people who can talk about this searing, blinding vision for the future. Why is this going to matter in 20 years? Why does this matter now? Who is that voice or those voices? It's probably uh, leadership. It's probably uh, high-functioning volunteers. But that voice of kind of this is why this matters, this is what we need. And then the face needs to be somebody who at the bottom of every legacy-giving newsletter, legacy lead generation pack, Facebook campaign says, call me. I'm Jen, and I would love to talk to you today for a confidential conversation. So the voice and the face is something that even if you don't figure it out early, you have to consider it the entire way through a mature legacy program. Because if you're not clear on what you're articulating as a vision, and then the call to action being, who do I talk to and who can I call, then you're going to get lost. So I would start with voice and face. And then the second thing I would say is do the work with your staff and your board and your volunteers and your donors to look into the future, 20 years, 30 years into the future. What does that look like? Articulate the, and we talked about legacy propositions earlier today, talk about the vision or dream that people will make possible not the practicalities of how to get there. And if you get those pieces under your belt, the rest of the stories and the rest of the content flows. Fraser, what do you want to add? Well, Jen, I've just what you said about the vision, I, I'm reminded of something I, I heard Richard Ratcliffe say many years ago when I was early into this stuff 20 years ago. And he was saying, and the example he used was, um, uh, today one in three people get cancer and it's a pretty serious issue. And a generation or two from now, it's going to be half the population are diagnosed with cancer. Yes. But instead of you need radiation, you need surgery, you need chemo, it's going to be here's a prescription, take two of these every day, and you'll be all right. Yes. Um, and so you, you need to be able to project some kind of believable future and some kind of progress on the cause that's going to make people want to be a want to be a part of it. I have somewhat different advice. I, I like everything that you said. But when someone's really got absolutely nothing to start with, I say find one story. And we yeah. go back to the, you know, the don't the donor story or the surviving loved one story, or get a per, get someone on your board to make a bequest if if none of them have already, and be willing to share his or her story, not from a board member's perspective, but just from the perspective of someone who cares about the cause, and have a conversation with that person. Start with stories, right? And start in brackets interview. Get mm -hmm. a good story, a good human emotive story, and then spend a season telling that story in every vehicle and channel that you can, you know, put it out in a direct mail letter to your most loyal donors, you know, put it on your website, 
uh, make a video, put it on your website, email it to people, uh, use it on social media. You know, a great story about this, this loyal supporter, click here and, you know, you go to the video or whatever. Just get one story and just get it out as much as you possibly can. And then, you know, three months down the road, six months down the road, get another story and do it again. And just start doing that and just planting the seeds. Uh, I always I always say to people, you know, we're planting oak trees here, not tomato plants. <laughs> and, and the fact is, in Canada, at least, about 90% of the legacy donors who make gifts are not going to tell us. So I, 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 I'm not a big believer in overemphasizing identifying existing, existing bequests. I know that you have to do it for internal political reasons. But you're not really raising money when you find someone who's already done it. You're raising money when you convince someone to do it. And that's where my primary interest lies. So I think let's pull a bit of an audible here, Fraser. I'm going to ask you this next question. And I think we should go to some of the great questions that are coming up in the sure. chat here. So, so my question to you would be three top tips for people who want to improve their legacy fundraising skills starting now. What are your three top tips? And then we'll go to a few of these great questions in the chat. Learn how to tell great stories. Mm -hmm. um, and if you'd like a little blurb, uh, uh, something I've written on seven steps to perfect to perfect uh, storytelling, I'd be happy to share it with you. And not that my way is the only way, but just get yourself into the mindset that I got to learn how to tell stories and I got to be confident at it. Secondly, and this is probably the biggest one and probably where I have spent my career's energy, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. go to the heart, yeah. make it human, make it real. Make it painful if it has to be. Make it loving if it has to be. Make it um, fearful if it needs to be. Make it joyous if it needs to be. But, and I know, I mean, I, my, my grandparents came from England, three out of the four of them. My grandmother went to finishing school. Uh, I come from an English Protestant uh, Victorian kind of culture. And we're not supposed to do that. And I'm saying, take off your Victorian cloak and open up your heart and go Brene Brown on their ass. Like just get vulnerable and get honest. And why does cancer matter to me? Why has cancer made you cry? That's, that's really, really important. And finally be patient. Uh, one of the biggest well, problems I see with legacy uh, marketing uh, work is that the CEO or someone gets bored with the campaign. So they say, let's change it. Uh, when in fact it's working great with the audience that it needs to work great with. We got to get out of our own egos and, let the donors and the prospects determine what's good and what isn't and not, you know, your treasurer comes into a meeting and says, oh, my two kids did something on crowdfunding. So let's forget about legacy giving. Let's go to crowdfunding. Make a, make a strategy, stick to it and be determined. Just you don't have to move. You don't have to move, you know, great big, huge boulders in a day, just pebble by pebble by pebble. It'll happen for you. So some of this is going to overlap, and then I'll go through these pretty quickly, and then we can ask go through a couple of questions here. My, my first one is kind of cultivate your own curiosity and interest in the stories of other people. Like, when you're genuinely interested in, I'm having a conversation with a person today who's been supporting us for a number of years, and they've made the decision to leave us in their will, hone in on your own ability to really be curious and interested and listen to what they're going to say. You don't have to be the person who is broadcasting or oversharing. You can be the person who's listening to this person's genuine, heartfelt story. And when you cultivate that curiosity, it becomes very open and welcoming. And you just bring that all into your experience. Let me just say very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
there's a lot of things in my job that I love. There are a few things that I'm not crazy about. Probably the thing I love the most, well, the two things I love the most, one is speaking to a group of people. Uh, live is even better than this, but this is pretty good. Uh, but secondly, when I have the opportunity to have that conversation or do that interview with someone involved in a charity who's deeply committed to it, and they're willing to tell me about their life, about their love, about their loss, about their fears, uh, about their hopes, about yep. their fears. Yep. And in, in 45 minutes or an hour, I get right inside them. Yes. What a privilege that is. I almost always hang up the phone saying, wow, like, isn't this amazing? I'm still surprised by it after all these years at how, just how amazing and open people will be. Agreed. And then my other one is find your people. Know that there are other legacy fundraisers. There are other storytellers out there who are dealing with the same things, asking themselves the same questions, dealing with some of the their own compassion, fatigue, vicarious trauma, all of these things that we deal with in the charitable sector are real. So finding the people that you can send a text to or a call at the last minute, this and fundraising everywhere creates this environment for people to be able to find people doing things similar to what they're doing. Um, and you, that, that is your ace in the hole is being able to know and trust your community. So let's go through a couple of questions here. One that I think is amazing, which I'm going to ask you first, Fraser, is what's the best way to approach existing pledgers to ask them to share their stories? I've, I've got an absolute answer for this one. Uh, I can tell you that when I'm involved with clients or people I'm coaching or mentoring or whatever as a volunteer, um, when you approach particularly a donor, volunteer, supporter, whatever it might be, and ask them to share their story, they're reluctant. They don't want to do it. They're people humble. Don't want to, people don't want to look like they're seeking attention, that they want to be stand out from the group. They're just another supporter. You know, why do you want to talk to me? And they're a little embarrassed because they're, they're not used to doing this. It almost always works in my experience to say, Jen, I understand your reluctance. This is new. This is strange. And we're asking you to share a pretty personal story here. But Jen, I want you to appreciate that the average charitable bequest in Canada is about $38,000. And I'm pretty convinced that if we tell your story the right way, we'll raise at least five new bequests. And that's about $200,000. So would you be willing to share your story so that we can raise $200,000? Once you monetize it, they have a hell of a time saying no. And they're usually kind of honored to be, to be asked. They get past that. It's not about me. It's about the cause. And that's why they're there in the first place. So. That's my answer. My answer is is very similar because, <laughs> and I don't. I so I don't get into the dollars and cents because I don't. I'm, I don't do math. But what I do say to people is, when you share your story, and I know you're not a Rockefeller, and I know you don't feel like you want to be bragging about your um, kindness and generosity. But when you share your story, it furthers our mission. So only you can give in this way. Like yeah. you're the only person who can further our mission by doing this. And like you said, people will be like, oh, I bet I'm going to shed my concerns about whether I'm answering questions accurately. This is not a journalistic interview and I don't need to have my notes totally lined up. What they are able to feel is, oh, this is another way that I can help this organization that I love enough to care for forever. And it really just the whole veil drops with people yeah. who are kind of like, oh, I can do that. I don't need to worry about whether I'm doing this right or whether I'm accurate. I'm just here to help the mission in a way that only I can do. 
And when people feel empowered to help a charity in a way that they can't, that other people can't, it, it, that is life-giving to people. So I think we've seen that question a couple of times. Anything mm -hmm. else from the Fundraising Everywhere team about other questions that have come through? I know we're kind of out of time, over time. Um, anything else coming? Okay, fantastic. So let's go back to, Fraser, let me ask you a little bit about some recent research insights. So legacy research is pouring over us. We have tons and tons and tons of legacy research to review and consider, including stuff from today. Um, what are some of the research insights that, have, that you've applied to your strategies? What have you heard and then turned into something that you can apply? Well, at the risk of self-promoting, and I always try so hard not to do that on, on webinars and conferences and so on, um, we, we've done research. We did some research into the pandemic because we'd heard all of these stories about people rushing to their lawyers to make wills and lawyers were really busy and so on and so forth. And we polled 1,500 uh, Canadian adults and asked them, uh, do you have a will? Uh, and, and, if you and if you do, uh, when did you make it? Did you make it because of the pandemic or did you have it before? And if you had a will before the pandemic, did you change it during the pandemic because of the pandemic? And what we found in Canada, and I generally expect Canadian, US and British numbers to be broadly the same, unless there are particular reasons for them to change. We found in Canada that about one in 10 of the existing wills in this country today were made during and because of, of the pandemic. So there's, there's something like... Uh, three quarters of a million new wills in this country that are pandemic driven. And about 20% of the wills in this country today were updated during and because of the pandemic. So that has changed the landscape. Where I disagree with a lot of people is a lot of people go, okay, okay, younger people are making wills. Let's go talk to younger people about the quest. I'm still not sold that a 34 year old father of two toddlers who just bought a house and was meaning to make a will and does it because of the pandemic is going to start thinking about charitable bequests just yet. Um, but plant seeds, these are oak trees. If you want to plant seeds with that guy and it doesn't cost you a lot of money, by all means, go ahead. Uh, the other thing I would say that I find very useful is we do a, a, a poll every few years called uh, State of the Legacy Nation. And based on our most recent research, I think it was 2019, we found that uh, about 1.3 million Canadian adults, and we have a population of almost 40 million, there are about 25 million adults and of the 25 million uh, about 1.3 million have made charitable bequests so when when uh, when canadian organizations are doing their promotional materials there's something called social proof if you're into like the psychology of influence it's like why mcdonald says you know 800 billion burgers sold uh, it's to convince you that lots of other people like them i always get them to say did you know that more than a million canadians have already uh, made a gift in their will to a charity. The reason for that is next to I need to provide for my family. The second biggest sales objection I find is, well, isn't this something rich people do? I don't think I have yeah. enough money to do this. Yes. Uh, so it helps to deal with that. That shows this is a, you know, people at the mall have made bequests, right? People in the convenience store have made bequests. People pumping gas next to you have made bequests. That's a very important message as well. You, Jen? Well, I think so. In a similar vein, you know, the, 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 there was some reluctance at the start of the pandemic to talk about uh, legacies and gifts and wills, but it became very quick, very clear, very quickly that people were doing this anyway. Lots, and certainly in Canada, we saw the 
massive growth in people writing their first will, updating their wills, contacting charities to say, oh yeah, I did this like a million years ago, but I never told you. But now that you're explaining to me why I should, I understand that. I don't want to be helpful. Um, and then the other piece, and it was just from Marina's session before, it was an article that I read uh, that actually my dad had shared with me and we talked about over the love family Christmas dinner, as you do, about this concept of terror management, that there is a way in which exercising some control over what can I do, what matters to me, and how am I putting one foot in front of the other one to get my arms around what feels like an uncontrollable situation. And I think that really helped me articulate to our clients that there is, um, it, this is not about ambulance chasing. This is not about being sort of rude or inappropriate. People are thinking about this anyway. They want ways to take action in, a, in times when we feel like we don't have a way to act. So the concept of terror management, I'm still working through it as the Rubik's Cube and talking to about it at the Love Family dinner table is always a place where things happen. But it fascinates me. The whole concept fascinates me. Jen, there's one on the chat I wanted to bring up. Ooh, okay. Uh, someone has asked, what are the first three questions you would ask in a conversation or an interview to get a donor or whoever to start speaking openly and you know emotionally and so on? And that's a great question. And my answer to it, uh, and I'm sure everybody's got their own answer, I always ask, the first question I like to ask is, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about growing up. And there will be supplemental questions there. How many siblings did you have? You know, uh, things like that. What, what did your parents do? What were you like at school? Who were you in high school is one of my favorite questions. Were you the, like captain of the cheerleading team? Were you the jock? Were you the quiet kid in the library getting straight A's? Were you, the, were you like the golf kid in the gully smoking dope or whatever it might be? Um, so who, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your, your life. Start at the beginning. The second question I love to ask is, who taught you to be generous? That really helps to get them into the right headspace. Uh, and that might be my grandfather. I saw my grandfather taking bags of groceries to people at Christmas or whatever it might be, or my mom doing something for the church. And then the third question I like to ask is, depending on the cause that you're working with. Um, when did cancer first start to matter to you? Because what's going to happen there is you're going to start to hear a story about them or someone they love who had a cancer jury. And then you're on the way. It's like you're, you've got a toboggan at the top of the hill. That's when you start the slide and it starts to go and pick up momentum. And I think once you get those kind of three questions under your belt, they don't have to be exactly those three. Uh, the only thing I would add, you're, you're well on your way. And the only thing I would add is that fundraisers like preachers and like politicians are born with two ears and only one mouth. So spend a way, way more time listening than you do talking. And that's hard for people like me, but I, I've learned how to do it. So I would say that in, in some similar veins, but also with some different responses here, one of the things I always ask is, why did you, what inspired your first gift? And usually someone can say, you know, in the case of environmental organizations, well, I couldn't stand watching our green belt be paved over here in Ontario. Uh, I, I remember the moment when I realized that this habitat that I love was going to be paved over. And I will never forget that feeling of like, I have to do something about this. I'm restless and passionate about it now. So I always ask that. I always ask about what are the most urgent priorities that you see in the future? 
Like what are the things that you're looking ahead to that our organization needs to respond to? And the last one is what would you say to other people? Yes. What would your message to other people be about why this matters and why they should take action? And then I'm going to give a bonus last question, even though they only asked for three, I'm going to give four. And then we do have a good question from Louise, which I'll ask you right after this, Fraser. I learned a very unexpected tip in, in conversations and interviews from, of all places, Howard Stern, which as a lifelong feminist was shocking <laughs> to me. But honestly, it's true. Stern talks about how when he's doing these long format interviews, which he does, he fakes the end and kind of says, oh, this has been great. Madonna, it's been great to have you here. You've given us lots to work with. There's lots to go here. I just have a few more things. And you can sense when oh. someone relaxes, like, oh, whew, I did my job. I got the questions answered. And then people become so much more open. And they, they realize that they've kind of checked the box and done the job for the charity they love. But when you give them this openness to just kind of, now we're just chatting, that's when you get so many beautiful, honest, vulnerable sentiments. One quick story is I spoke to a woman about her lifelong commitment to nature in Ontario. We talked about everything from advocacy to habitats to species, everything in between. And at the end of our conversation, I said, you know, this has been great. It's been great to talk to you. I'm going to come back to anything I didn't ask, um, but just wanted to say, you know, how much I appreciate this. And she sort of went very quiet and you have to honor that silence and she said you know what jen it's been too long since i've been arrested and this was a 75 year old grandmother who had not reflected on her <laughs> advocacy her activist mindset until she would never have told me that unless i had been able to let her come down from have i done my job have i done this appropriately I don't think she would have got there if she didn't feel like, oh, now we're just chatting with this lovely woman, Jen, who I've been with the last hour. So that bonus question has really changed the way I frame conversations. So I have, we have a great question from Louise. The optics about asking for a legacy during a pandemic when loved ones are dying. Fraser, what do you want to say about that? We, when, when the pandemic happened, uh, the company I'm a partner in is called GoodWorks, and we do... We use direct mail and digital channels to generate annual and legacy gifts. And we found that when the pandemic started and the lockdown started, almost all of our clients were going, my executive director thinks we should stop fundraising. Like there was kind of this panic and this frozen in the headlights kind of idea. And we convinced almost all of them to go ahead. Uh, and we had particular resistance on the legacy front, understandably. But man, we, we had more success during uh, 2020 and early 2021 on both fronts than anything we'd ever seen before. So yeah. it's top of mind. And the, the lesson from this, I would say, is you don't always know what your donors think and what they want. Ask them and listen to them and give them what they tell you they want and you'll be okay. Agreed. And I would only add, Louise, to your question that starting from a place of empathy of like, yes. I know there's a lot going on. I know you have a lot of considerations. I know we're all reflecting on our mortality, spy balloons slash UFOs, like these are real things that we're all experiencing every day. So just honoring and recognizing that there's, we're working, um, we're working in a, in a challenging environment and we're living in a challenging time. So anything you can tell us that will move other people to action helps. 
And people want to help. And when, and so, I, when I talked earlier, sorry, about outside voices rather than the corporate voice, uh, you know, legacy giving during a pandemic, instead of Jen, the CEO of the organization saying, you can still think about a legacy gift, you know, whatever, whatever. What if Fraser, the donor, said, you know, this pandemic has affected my family and we're all more thinking yes. about our future and how much time we have left. But you know what? I decided I needed to update my will just in case. But I also realized now's the time to finally make that gift to save our environment or protect the animals or whatever. If it comes from a donor, if it comes from a supporter, if it comes from a program recipient, you know, even though this pandemic's on, I'm still getting this service or this benefit in part because people in the past made bequests. And I yeah. think it's important that we keep doing yes. this. So we're that standing on the shoulders. We'll get this help. It's, it's. We're standing on the shoulders of giants and saying, yeah. We realize that this is a complicated, unique time, but people before us have lived through complicated and unique times. Exactly. So it's a sensitivity. And when you have the direct conversation, you can handle it more eloquently than this kind of broad brush of like, isn't it inappropriate to talk to people about death when lots of people are dying from COVID or climate change or whatever? So, And, and Jen, if yeah. I could throw in one very quick thought. Um, it's increasingly my experience, and I've been doing this for two decades now, that the biggest obstacle most of us have today in terms of advancing our, our legacy program is our internal leadership and our internal yes. decision makers. Yes. They don't get it. They're not, they're afraid to invest. They don't want to invest. They'd rather have another golf tournament this spring. They and and the reason for that is, and we've got to own this, we have not done a good enough job of educating them as to what this is all about, how it works, and how much money is at stake. I mean, when I when I show a, a client I'm working with right now that's getting a million dollars a year in legacy gifts, that by doing some pretty simple things over a decade, you're going to get that up to four million. Um, people take notice, and when you can and when you can use research and data and actual real numbers to support that claim, then they start to buy in, and it's it's critical because when your treasurer and your executive director and whoever else chair your board, ah, nah, Maybe next year. Well, you can maybe next year all your way into 2075 and you still haven't done it. Thank you so much for listening to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not share it with a fundraising friend? And if you would like to give us a little like or subscribe, it really helps more fundraisers like you find us. Thank you so much. See you next time.